The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. This morning, I want to talk about glad hearts, rejoicing tongues, and faith-infused lives. It comes from this passage in Acts 2, and, and we come to every sermon that was ever preached by the apostles coming after the resurrection. The subject was, in some way, the resurrection. And we come to a day like this where we gather together and we celebrate, and there's a watching world that says, why do they do that? Why, why do they get together? Why do they make such a big deal? And we would ask the same question, why are we here? I think we would be served well to ask, why are we here? There's a world out there that doesn't know Christ or the hope that infuses our lives, and they look at us and they think we've lost our minds. Not just on this Sunday, but every Sunday that we would give to getting up early and, and joining together with the family of God to worship and sing songs and listen to some guy at the front talk about antiquated writings in a book to them. They just think it's crazy that we've lost our minds. Other people, though, they come to this time of year, and, and there may be some of you here, and I don't mean this to be in, in any way derogatory, but there are some, particularly where we live, still in the Bible Belt, that still feel a need to come to, to, to a church service on Easter morning. They, there may be some that are here that uh, this is the only time you ever come, that, that you come once, maybe twice a year, out of sort of this societal pressure, that this is kind of what you're supposed to do. There are also others that when we look at this question and, and they, uh, they ask, why are we here? What are we doing? There are some that have no idea that we're here this morning. There are some that are still sleeping in their beds or they've just gotten out of beds and they've rolled to their table and they're having a cup of coffee or maybe they're beginning to work outside in their garden and they just really haven't thought about us being here at all. And it's not that they condemn us at all in it. They're just mindless to it. They just not thought about it. It's not on their radar at all. There are also those who are very aware of what we do here. They're very aware of all the cognitive, intellectual, right answers, and they can spit back all of the doctrine and all of the theology because they've sat under countless sermons and been through so many Easter services over their life, but they've never truly heard the sermon in a way that has transformed and changed their life. We come to this day and we ask this question, what are we doing here? Well, it's out of that question that I want to look at our text this morning because in this passage, Acts 2, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has ascended back to the Father. The Spirit has, he, he's told the, the, the apostles to go and to wait. They've been gathering to pray. And now they come before this crowd, and Peter stands up to preach. He preaches this first sermon. And on this day, 3,000 people in this crowd will come to know Christ as Lord and risen Savior of their souls. So it's in that context, in that vein, that I want us to read this together. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 22. Acts 2, verse 22 says, Men of Israel, Peter stands up and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you 
crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make, full, make me full of gladness in your presence. Brothers, I may say to you this with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out his he, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. First off, what I want you to see in this passage, when Peter stands and he preaches, we see the resurrection teaches us that God himself makes definite plans. Makes definite plans. He's, he, I just want to walk through these first few verses with you. When he starts out and he, he names who he's talking about and he says, Jesus of Nazareth. He's not talking about any Jesus. He's not talking about anyone who, who might be confused, who might have the same name at some point in history. He's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He's pointing to a real man who was a historical figure, who lived in a real town, who had real parents, who had a real job and a real house and, and, and had real friends and, and all the like. Then he goes on and he says, not only Jesus of Nazareth, but he says he's a man attested by God. We think about when that took place, when God attested Jesus, when he verified, when he vouched for Jesus. Well, you think back, one case in example would be at his baptism. If you think back to when Jesus came to John the Baptist to, to be baptized, he was taken down into the water, and when he came out, there was a voice from heaven the voice of God himself declared openly in the, in the hearing of all, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Peter says, he goes on and he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Many were eyewitnesses is the point here. Many of them in this crowd today, when Peter is preaching this sermon, many of them were eyewitnesses of the very things that God had done, that Jesus had done. The word here, when, when Peter uses this word, these mighty works, it's the word from which we get our word dynamite. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around dynamite when it's exploded, but I would imagine you don't forget it. It's just a, I guess, an educated guess there. Anybody been around dynamite? Hold up your hands, show us the fingers that are missing, those sort of, you know, whatever. If, you, if you've ever been around it, you don't forget it. It's, it's explosive and it's, it's powerful. And P 
Peter wants to recall and remind so many of these that are listening to the sound of his voice that when they saw Jesus, they saw this dynamite, explosive power of God in and through Jesus. I mean, think about what they had seen him do. Early on, they had watched him turn water into wine. They had watched him take a little boy's lunch and feed a multitude. They had seen him speak to those who were crippled from birth and command him to get up and walk. They had seen him speak and see a limb that was curled, straightened. They had watched him as, as he gave sight to blind men, as he gave legs to lame men, as he even gave life to dead men. They had watched him as he confounded the educated religious men of the day, those who were so much further above all the rest in the crowd, and Jesus being one who had not had that training confounded him. He confounded them with what he taught and then also in the way he answered their questions. In every case, they tried to trap him and get him to trip up on all that they were hoping to catch him in, and he never once did so. It couldn't help but come to any conclusion other than when they looked at him and now on the backside of the cross with this empty tomb glaring in front of them, they couldn't help but to look and say, we did, we saw God vouch for him. And these very miracles that he did. And then Peter goes on in this sermon and he says, as you yourselves know. It's as if Peter in this sermon is looking out at this crowd full of skeptics and inquisitive people and those who are still adamantly opposed and now wondering what in the world do we do now that we have this empty tomb? We can't do anything to shut this up. And he looks out at them and he says, you yourselves know. And I would imagine there, Peter pauses as if to give them the opportunity that if I'm telling a, a mistruth, if I'm lying about this, if anything that I'm saying is wrong, then please speak up. The bottom line is that Jesus is a real man who was vouched for by God and who was watched by many who were there in this crowd that day. I say all that to tell you that Peter's point here is God makes definite plans. And here's where it begins to really make sense. Peter goes on and he says, Jesus, this Jesus, this one, I don't want you to make any mistakes about him. This man was delivered up according to the definite plan of God and the foreknowledge of God. Now let me unpack that for you. This is going to be a little bit intense as we walk through this. You'll have to follow along with the scripture with me for just a little bit. I want to give you some of these words so that we can see what's really being said here. First off, we'll walk through these in reverse order. He says, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That word foreknowledge is the word from where we get our word prognosis. The doctor gives a prognosis. He's making an educated guess about the likely course a disease will follow, will take. And that doctor, whether he or she is very educated or not, can't say for any certainty, with any certainty, how that's really going to go. But they can look at it and say, this, if it follows like every other case, it's going to wind up in, in one of these avenues. Was that what? He's talking about here. 
Is that what Peter is, is speaking of when he says that, that Jesus was delivered up according to the foreknowledge of God? Is he saying that God simply looks at this and makes an educated guess as to how things are going to t- turn out? I would say to you, not at all. The rest of this is going to prove this for us. God doesn't make educated guesses because he doesn't have to. It's not that God looks out with an educated guess and sees how this thing might go. It's that God himself knows the end from the beginning. The word here, foreknowledge, from which we take a prognosis, means God knows it all. That God knows the end from the very beginning. Now, look at this next word I want you to see, this next couple of words together, this definite plan. It's where we get our word horizon. When you stand on the beach, one of my favorite things I remember as a child is, is grow, I grew up in the mountains of East Tennessee, and, and uh, we would go to the beach, maybe not every year, but almost every year we'd go to the beach, and I'll never, I'll never get over, I still don't. Get, you drive all that way, and you finally get there, and you can see finally the ocean, and you can stand on the shore, and you can look out as far as you can possibly see, and it looks like it goes on forever, but the reality is it doesn't, because your eyes can only see to where? To the horizon. That's the horizon. It's as far as your eyes can see. And I would, tell you, I would say to you this morning that our lives, your life this morning, has a horizon as well. It's not looking out over a body of water. It's your life. How much of your future life can you see? Can't you only see this one second at a time, this one present moment at a time. We, we make statements sometimes. I talk with people often who are going through hard things in their life, and they will say things to me like, it's just so hard. And I will offer, try to offer encouragement and say, but you can only take one day at a time. And that's true. But the reality is we can't even take one day at a time. We have to take one moment at a time. Wouldn't it be nice sometimes to be able to see over the horizon? I say sometimes because sometimes it would be nice to see what was going to be coming. Other times, I don't think we'd want to see what was coming. Maybe you're here in this moment this morning, and you're in the middle of something that is incredibly difficult, and and you are just saying, God, when will it end? And you'd love to be able to look over the horizon of your life and say, there it is. Because if you could see it's going to end there, then it might give you a little bit of hope. When, when if you're a runner in the room or, for, or if you do any type of workouts and you know that you've got a certain amount that you've got to do, doesn't it help to know that there is a finish line? It would be nice sometimes to see the horizon or see beyond the horizon. But other times it wouldn't be. Other times we would see things that we would never imagine for ourselves. We would find that just over the horizon there are things that we're getting ready to walk into that we weren't preparing for. Well, I want you to know that when I say to you, God makes definite plans, I want you to know that God sees the end from the beginning and that God sees over the horizon. Not only can God see over the horizon, but it's not just that he's seeing over the horizon, it's that he's determining what happens over the horizon. This word here, when he says God makes definite plans, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plans 
and the foreknowledge of God, it's not simply that God is seeing what's coming and then reacting to it. It's that Jesus was a part of the plan that God devised from the beginning. He says that he's delivered up. The word literally means given over. In other words, history doesn't take one step forward without God giving it permission and direction. It doesn't doesn't move on one inch without God determining what will take place. You say, well, boy, then what does that mean when bad things come into my life? Is God an evil, sadistic God? Or you say something like, well, is this just fatalism? Are things just destined to happen and I can't do anything about it? Should I just sit back and do nothing? I'll tell you exactly what this means. This means that God knows the end from the beginning because he has drawn up definite plans for the future and creates history by then delivering on those plans. So wait a minute, what what are you talking about? Let me make it a little more personal for you. Whatever comes your way has come from the hands of a loving, sovereign, holy God who is, as we sang earlier, for us. Some of you are right now in the middle of something tough, and you are wondering when it will get better. Well, I would tell you, your present situation has a future reality that will one day be the history that God has determined from the very beginning. I want you to hear those words because I chose those words carefully. Your present will have a future that will be the history that God has planned from the beginning. Nothing can thwart the plans of God. And and here's here's where it's going to get good for you. It's been hard listening up to this point, but listen to me. For the child of God, if you are a believer in this room today, trusting in Christ and in him alone, this is good news for you because Romans 8, 28, 29 only makes sense if what I've just told you is true. Romans 8, 28, and 29 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he, listened to the words again, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The resurrection church is good news for us because we see God delivering Jesus to the cross in order that he might come out of the tomb. The cross was no surprise to God. It's no surprise whatsoever to God. Are y'all here this morning? I feel like I'm preaching to a room of empty chairs. The cross was no surprise to God. Isaiah 53 says this. Surely he, meaning Christ, surely he, this was written 700 years or so before Christ ever goes to the cross, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
Now, how do you write something like that? If you read the rest of Isaiah 53 and how detailed it is in the description of what Jesus endured at the cross, how do you write something like that 700 years before it happens unless you have already determined that it's going to happen and then delivered on that plan? The cross is no surprise to God. Isaiah 53 verse 10 goes on and it says, It was the will of the Lord. To crush him. First Peter 1, 20 and 21 gives us a clue about these definite plans that we see coming to fruition at the cross and the empty tomb. And First Peter 1 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, why is it good news that God makes definite plans? Because we're the ones, if you're here today as a believer, we're the ones addressed here in 1 Peter. That God foresaw and made plans to send Christ to the cross because of our predicament, because of our sin and our need. Aren't you glad that along the way, all the things that attempted to try to stop that plan didn't thwart those plans of God? From the very beginning, Satan was out to stop these plans, and he couldn't pull it off throughout all of history. If you go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, the serpent comes and tempts Eve and tempts Adam into taking from this fruit and rebelling against God. But even there, in in that case, when they rebel against God and follow after the serpent's temptations, the plans of God are not stopped. They're not changed in any way. It's just bringing about what God had planned and set out to do. All the way through history, Satan has tried to stop it at every turn. Think about all the opposition against Jesus when he was on this earth. When he was there in the wilderness for those 40 days and Satan comes and tempts him and tries to take him off of this mission Jesus stays the course. All those Pharisees and scribes and religious people trying to ensnare him, following him at every step and every move, trying to stop him, take him off of this course of the mission and the plan, the definite plan of God, and never happened. Even those who participated in the crucifying of Jesus participated unwittingly, thinking they were stopping this plan, but all the while they were pawns in playing into this plan. This is good news for us this morning, church. This is good news for us that God makes definite plans and the plans that God makes can never in any way be thwarted so that when we come to passages like Romans 8 that tell us that those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, that those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also will glorify. That's good news for us because today we sit here not having to perform some sacrifice in order to earn God's favor or trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps so that we might make ourselves what the Bible tells us we ought to be. But instead, Jesus is the answer that God planned from the beginning, and he is the answer that will see us all the way through to the end. Nothing will thwart those plans. Not only does God make definite plans, 
But God's sovereignty doesn't remove your responsibility, doesn't remove our responsibility. Just because God makes these plans that are sovereign and cannot be thwarted doesn't mean that we get to escape the consequences of our own sinful choices. He points out to to these here when he preaches this sermon that they are the ones who crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of wicked men. In saying this, he's looking out at at the Jews and he's saying, you're the ones. But he's not simply talking to the Jewish people there who had had Jesus arrested and contrived this plan, but he's also including people like Pilate. He's also including the soldiers who beat and scourged Jesus and nailed him to the cross. It's not just the Jewish people, but it's those outside who participated that day as well. People in our culture have a hard time understanding guilt. Don't we have a hard time understanding guilt? Don't we try to shift the blame? Um, I was listening to uh, a podcast this week where uh, there was a a New York Times um, article uh, this past week from a man named Adam Grant, who's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And he was writing this article talking about how can parents be good, how can parents raise moral children. And this is the advice he gives. He says, when a child makes a bad choice or a bad moral decision, you should try to parent them such that they feel guilt but not shame. He quotes research by uh, June Price Tangney, a psychologist, in arguing that shame is the feeling that I am a bad person, whereas guilt is the feeling that I've done a bad thing. So he's trying to distinguish here between shame and guilt, trying to separate these things out. And he continues, and he says, shame is a negative judgment about the core self, which is devastating. Shame makes children feel small and worthless, and they respond either by lashing out at the target or escaping the situation altogether. In contrast, he says, guilt is a negative judgment about an action, which can be repaired by good behavior. He says, when children feel guilt, they tend to experience remorse and regret, empathize with with the person that they've harmed, and, and they aim to make it right. Has that always been the case with your kids? Can we make this type of distinction between shame and guilt? I don't think so. The Bible never makes a distinction between shame and guilt, between that we're bad in our nature and that we simply make bad choices. See, the problem here with this article is that the author assumes that these children that he refers to are basically good in the beginning. And the reality is, the Bible tells us that none of us are good, that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, that there are none righteous. And it's not just children here that he's talking about, but it's all of us. Now think about this. You've heard pastors, you've heard me maybe use this illustration before, but did you ever teach your children to misbehave? Did you line them up one day or sit them around the table and say, you know, yesterday we talked about the things that we should do, you know, cleaning our room and, you know, putting our clothes, dirty clothes in the laundry basket and those sort of things. But today, as your dad, I feel obligated to teach you how to misbehave. So here's how it's going to go. This is what you want to do. Did you ever do that? No. It goes like this. What are you doing? Well, I was just going to do this. But we, we told you not to do that. I know you did, but I was just going to do this thing. But, but we told you not to. Well, I know, but I, I just, I really wanted to do this thing. 
but we told you not to, right? It's, it's this within them that comes from this nature in the same way that a dog barks because it's a dog. And a cat hides in a field looking for mice because it's a cat. The same way we misbehave, not simply because we make bad choices, but because in the core of who we are, because of sin passed down to us from our first parents, Adam and Eve, we are sinners. It's our very nature. None of us are innocent. None of us are good from the beginning. We all have sinned. And Peter knows this when he stands before this crowd and he says, you, you killed Jesus. Even though he's just said to them, this Jesus was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The sovereignty of God over this plan does not remove the individual guilt of sin. Peter starts here and he tells them, you crucified him. You say, I I would say to you as, as pastor and preacher this morning, it's not just those in the crowd. It's very easy for us to come to a text like this and, and remove ourselves from it and sit almost in a theater-style setting and, and be entertained by this story and think, yeah, those people in the crowd, they were rotten people. But when Peter, I believe, says, you crucified him, even though you weren't there that day, we have culpability in it as well. We crucified Jesus, with our sin. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what motivated him to go. Jesus knew the wages of sin was death. Jesus had no sin of his own. Yet he went to a cross and died. So why did he go? He went for your sin, and he went for my sin. He went for the sin of all who would ever turn and trust and believe in him. Romans 5, 7, and 8 says this, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us then. So I wasn't alive then. Don't forget, he knows the end from the beginning. And while we don't want to sentimentalize the cross and say things like you were, on the cro- you, you were on his mind when he was on the cross and sort of make it all about you and, and you centered, there is a reality here that says Jesus already knew you when he went to the cross. He already knew your sin. He knew that you would need a Savior. He went to the cross, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. God makes definite plans, but his sovereignty over those plans does not remove our culpability or our guilt. We need someone to come and remove that guilt for us. Which brings me to my third and final point this morning in this. 
Our actions will definitely have consequences. Our sin, our choices will definitely have consequences. But praise God, the resurrection teaches us that they will not have the final word. The empty tomb is a God-sized exclamation mark saying, no, no, I will not leave them in their sin. Peter here says in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. 2 Samuel 22 talks about it. It compares death. It gives us a word picture of cords that tangle every single person. It's like ropes, like someone being tangled in these ropes and dragged to the depths of the abyss. I love to watch Deadliest Catch. It's one of my favorite shows. Those guys are crude and vulgar and all that sort of thing. They bleep out all kinds of things, but there's just something raw in this. And, and, and when you watch that, there is, if you, if you know, those guys have to be incredibly careful with where they stand. They get their feet tied up in those ropes, tangled up in those ropes before that pot goes over the edge of, of the, the boat and, and sinks to the bottom of the ocean floor. They will go every bit down with it. And there will be no rescuing them. This is the picture here of death, that for every single person who will ever live, death is a reality that will entangle and and wrap around you, and it will be the trap. Psalm 116 compares death to this snare that entraps everyone. But when God raised Jesus from the dead, that wasn't true anymore. To that point, everyone, everyone, Everyone had, had died or been, been taken out by God. There may have been an example or two there in, in early parts of Scripture, but death was reality. But at, when Jesus is raised from the dead, it's not true anymore. For the first time ever, death had been defeated. Look at what Peter says. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it wasn't possible for him to be held by it. Death was no match for God. Bertram says, The abyss can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. Pregnant women, try that. It's not going to happen. And by the time you get to the end of nine months, you don't want it to happen. You're ready for it to be over. And he says here, look, death is coming. We can't avoid it. There's nothing we can do to stop it. Daryl Bach says, like ropes being let loose, death was not able to encircle Jesus and hold him in its painful grip. You may be well aware of your guilt here today. And you may be thinking, yeah, I know God makes definite plans and I know he sent Jesus and I know my sins have consequences and that's why even the sacrifice and the work of Jesus could never repair what I have done. You may think that what you have done has, has had the final word that is, is written this exclamation mark at the end of your life and it has just determined your forever to which the resurrection says no. No. It's impossible. You cannot possibly sin bigger or deeper or wider or higher or longer or louder than what His grace can cover. It's impossible. His grace can only be received, though, if you repent and believe. See, for some of you, the reason you feel like you can't ever be fixed, you can't ever be made right because of your past, you're still hanging on to your ability to fix it. 
And the reality is this gospel, this definite plan of God that is carried out in the person and the work of Jesus for you whom he knew from the beginning can only be received. It cannot be worked for. It cannot be earned. You can't give, as we had an illustration in Sunday school this morning, you can't give a large enough gift, $500 million or more. You can't do that and earn heaven. It can only be received. So this brings us back to our original question. What are we doing here? April 20th, Easter Sunday morning, what are we doing here? There there may be lots of people looking at us like we've lost our minds. There may be those that show up once a year or twice a year out of societal pressure. There may be those that have no idea that we're even here this morning, that by now are on their second cup. Or they've gone from tilling the garden to now they're beginning to put some things in the ground. There may be those people. There may be some sitting here today in this very room that you've sat, and maybe this is your 30th Easter, or maybe it's your 50th Easter, or maybe it's 70th Easter. I don't know. But you've never truly heard the sermon in the way that has changed your life. Because see, this sermon that Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 that came to believe but we have to know that there were more than 3,000 in the crowd that day. And so maybe you're here today and you're sitting here and this is so many times you've heard the gospel but you've never heard until today. There may be all these people that are looking at us saying we're foolish and, or they're here out of pressure or all these things but in this room there are also those who are here because the resurrection has given us hearts that are glad and tongues that rejoice and lives that are infused with hope. That's what he says here as he goes on in verses 25 as he quotes David. And you get down, verse 25, he says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. There's a point in this, this prophecy where it's no longer David talking about David, but David being a prophet is talking about Jesus. And Jesus, when he's on the cross, says, I saw the Lord always before me. We look back at this and we say, we don't have to be shaken because Jesus is always before us. Death couldn't hold him. And look at verse 26. Therefore my heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or to death. Look, because the ropes of death could not hold and entangle and drag Jesus to the abyss, those who trust in Jesus, it can't hold us and won't hold us either. Verse 28, you have made me, you've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. The reality is, for those of us who are here that are believers, look, resurrection may mean very little or nothing to lots of other people, but to us, we have every reason to be glad and to rejoice 
And to live in the face of a culture that calls us crazy and nuts and thinks that we are a sect of society that just needs to be put away. And we have every reason to live with love, extending the gospel to even them, loving enemies with hope. Because if death was no reality for Jesus, it is no reality for us either. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray, God, that you would take this message of the resurrection, this first sermon that was preached, and, God, that you might do all over again what you did in the beginning. God, I'm not looking for 3,000. I'm not looking for any number at all. God, I simply want you to work through your word. I simply want you to take the gospel, and, God, I pierce the hearts and drive down deep piles into the hearts of people who are sitting here or possibly listening to the podcast. And God, that you would stake your claim on them. God, that you might set men free today. That you might open the blind eyes of women who are sitting here. That you might cause the the lame legs of children to be able to walk. That you might call us out of death and into life. God, I pray that you would do all of it for your own beautiful name. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to respond to this message. The way we do this is a little different, and if if you're here all the time, it's not any different than what we normally do, with a couple of exceptions. If you're here today and, and you've never received by faith Christ, you've never turned from your sin and trusted in him alone as your only hope, then today we'd like to help you as to how to do that. We'd like to answer questions for you. And if I can be a help to you, I'm going to be seated right down here on the front row. And I'd love for you just to step out as Ethan plays and and we sing and just come talk to me. But maybe you don't want to come out and come to me and you don't have to. I'm not a mediator between you and God. There's one mediator between us and God. His name is Jesus. But maybe you don't want to come this way. There is a prayer room that is right out through these doors or right out through those doors around the hall. And there will be people there to greet you, people that can pray with you. Maybe it's to receive the gospel. Maybe it's something else in your life. These are loving brothers and sisters in Christ that have no agenda other than to be the body. And so if they can be of help to you, then please make your way out there and, and go see one of them. These pallets that are up here that Ethan made reference to earlier, we also want to open those up to you because maybe, maybe the fact that the resurrection means that we have glad hearts and rejoicing tongues and hope-infused lives, maybe you need some way, some, some avenue to express that. And so come up, even during this time, and read these. There's also a stack of paper on the sides of of each of these with some pens there. Maybe you'd like to just as an expression of gratitude, of gladness in the resurrection, just take and write something out and just close pen it there as well. If you're here and you just need maybe me to pray with you or maybe you want to come and turn these steps into an altar up here where you would just get before before God and pray. Maybe you want to stay where you are and you just sing. You just sing out loud these songs and you respond to the resurrection. Look, there's nothing magical in any of these ways. There's nothing religious in any of these ways. 
it must be our hearts responding, trusting in Christ alone. But as, as God moves on your heart, I'm asking you to step out, to make some expression. You always respond to the gospel. You always respond to preaching. So I'm going to ask you to respond. As Ethan leads us, let's worship our God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.